Welcome back. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on a Tuesday afternoon. Much more still to come. We'll talk about pharmacare later in this hour. We'll talk about uh, nicotine policy, vaping, nicotine pouches, all the rest, how to regulate that. Which, you know, raises a question of, okay, how do we balance protecting kids with kind of the freedoms of adults? Which, in a way, is, um, you know, emblematic of the balance that the uh, government has been trying to strike around the whole issue of online harms. Right, the idea of still protecting freedom of speech and expression on the internet, but also trying to protect kids uh, from all the garbage uh, that's out there on the internet. So we've been expecting this legislation for quite some time. In fact, the liberals promised this years ago, which and maybe it's a good thing that they took their time with this. This is sweeping legislation, but at the same time, I think it's fair to say that it's probably more narrow than maybe we expected it would be or that the government had previously advertised it might be. Uh, but this tries to, to cover a lot, uh, not just hate speech or incitement to hatreds, and there's some new provisions around there, including a new standalone offense in the Criminal Code of Canada, some requirements on major platforms to remove content quickly. There's going to be a new digital commission and an ombuds, ombudsman to deal with all of that. It also uh, targets areas uh, related to sexual exploitation and online harassment, trying to better protect kids from that kind of stuff. So joining us for some analysis of whether this bill finds the right balance and does so in an effective way, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Emily Laidlaw, Associate Professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Calgary, Canada Research Chair in Cybersecurity Law. Professor Laidlaw, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. I mean, first of all, we kind of knew the, the general direction that this legislation was going to go, but was there anything that, that surprised you yesterday, first of all? Yes, I, I mean, I will say that it, it does generally reflect what uh, we had recommended that uh, the government do with when we formed, you know, had the expert panel a few years ago. But there are a few things that are surprising. I would say that uh, the federal government has taken a really measured approach here. So there are decisions they made about platforms that are outside of scope that I imagine are going to be controversial, especially for groups that have advocated for it. So private messaging is clearly out. Right. So you'd think things like Snapchat are going to be out. Um, uh, gaming is out, which can be uh, a major place where a lot of online harms happen with children. Mm -hmm. And uh, search engines are out as well, which is interesting. And if you look at our, you know, the jurisdictions in the EU and the UK that have done similar laws, they have been much more broadly scoped. So uh, the federal government took um, a, a much more measured step when it came to to what they scoped in, but they did uh, they are proposing creation of a, a commissioner, a body that will be the one investigating these companies that would have the power to find them, and in very narrow circumstances, the commission would have the power to order removal of certain types of content. Well, it's also worth noting because I think originally uh, the government was looking at actually allowing uh, the, the power to block websites altogether. So that, that's also something that's, that's out here. Yeah, all, I mean, the entire framework from 2021 was out, but I would say that by the time we were advising the federal government in 2022, they had shifted course to be uh, more of this risk management approach. So I'm not surprised by what they've decided. And I would say that there is really important uh, uh, 
you know, it's, it's incredibly important that content is removed in certain circumstances. It is nearly focused here on child sexual abuse images and um, intimate image abuse. And including now, they've created a, the crime of deep fakes, um, sharing of intimate images that are AI generated. So, um, so that is nearly for that, which might be also controversial, is that there will not be uh, a content removal power for the commission for all kinds of other harmful content. So hate speech, terrorist propaganda, content that incites violence. So the focus there is going to be about companies kind of taking this proactive approach, a consumer protection approach, and saying, you know, what is our digital safety plan? How are we um, taking steps to ensure that our place is not perfectly safe, but is, you know, is, is relatively safe for users on certain topics? But then without that sort of elevated issue that creates fundamental rights risks where you essentially would have a body that could order removal of all kinds of content, that's not what's being proposed. Right. So... Where are the gaps? Because it does seem like a lot of what, what's being targeted is already more or less illegal. Like I don't know that we're necessarily criminalizing things that weren't criminalized before, although maybe in, in a narrow sense we, we kind of are. But it, it, are, are there gaps that need to be filled here? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And the one main thing that I want to correct here is that current law does not cover any of this. Um, right now, these platforms operate essentially... Uh, they set their, their terms themselves. They self-regulate when it comes to online harms. So if an individual posts content that, say, hate speech, mm -hmm. then the options available at the moment would be to go to law enforcement, and law enforcement could investigate and, and, um, and lay charges. That is appropriate in certain circumstances if they can identify the individual or not. The question in this legislation is to say, if these corporations are providing certain products and services, do they have certain responsibilities? Like, what do they have to do to ensure that their products are safe? And not just in safe in terms of protecting from harm, but do they have obligations when it comes to privacy, to protection of freedom of expression, to protection of equality, and so on? So we don't actually have any laws on that particular topic, and we're way out of step with other jurisdictions. Um, Europe, for example, has had laws in place since 2000, and they're now on, now on to their second version of laws. Um, Australia has had an e-safety commissioner for seven years. The U.S. is moving in on various laws. They have over 100 right now that are in the works or proposed and have had a comprehensive law since 1996. So, um, so I think that it's, it's critically important that listeners understand that there is a massive vacuum here. But we have to be sensitive and we think, you know, when we think about, well, how do you balance all, you know, this discursive space where people, you know, are expressing themselves online, but also uh, an enormous amount of criminal behavior is happening. Right. And what are the decisions we make in law? Well, so it was interesting you explained because I think people would say, well, yeah, I mean, you know, child pornography is obviously illegal. Um, you know, we have hate speech laws that, that exist in the criminal code and have for years. But in terms of applying it in the digital world to the obligations on platforms, because, you know, Facebook or Twitter, it's not those companies that are posting that material, right? It's individual users. So even if technically those things are illegal, 
what you're saying is that our ability to, to do anything about it in this realm has been severely limited. Severely limited. And there's a massive access to justice issue because many of the victims get lost in the mix where they say, well, maybe I don't feel comfortable going to law enforcement or that particular process might be a long one. And I have to, you know, wind its way to the court for maybe to get a court order to have my intimate image removed um, when really what I want is, is a safer space online where, for example, TikTok needs to take particular steps um, to, uh, to remove intimate images and child sexual abuse material. And I think that the other thing that is key here, too, is that it is about the business model. So in particular, when it comes to child safety, there is an issue here where algorithms are pushing content to children that is pro-suicide, that is self-harm, that is essentially manipulating their minds. Um, and, and the question is about what safety steps the companies should be taking, what safeguards they should put in place when it comes to the design of their algorithms. This is all going to be covered by this legislation. So it, it is, and that's something that's not covered right now in law unless you're talking about piecemeal provisions, perhaps in private sector privacy legislation. Um, and we, you know, it, it, it's, it's nothing comprehensive like is what is proposed here. You know, the concept of harmful content, though, and I mean, you know, we can think of examples of more obvious examples, and I think you just outlined a few, but is, is this at some level in, inherently subjective? Do we run into to that problem somewhere along the way? Well, yeah, and so then the, the thing that I was looking for when I read this legislation was, do they have key safeguards here to ensure that freedom of expression is protected? What's in place? Because we don't want a regulator with, that can overstep that has the power to order, order, order removal of all kinds of content. And I will say that there are key safeguards. One is their power to order removal is only for those, you know, two categories I mentioned about child sexual exploitation and intimate images. Yeah. Um, then um, there are some stronger protections for children, but it's still not about content removal. It's about design. It's like, how do you structure your website? Um, what are the features that kind of locking kids? It's the idea of doom scrolling and so on, right? Um, and then the other is about risk management and safety plans, which again, aren't about individual pieces of content. The thing that I really think needs to be strengthened in the legislation though, is that the obligation on companies to, to file these digital safety plans don't obligate them to specifically consider fundamental rights and report on how are they taking steps to ensure freedom of expression is protected. Um, that is a, that's an obligation in, in Europe. It's specific in the UK as well. So I think that that is something key that needs to be changed in what is being proposed. Now, we mentioned that, you know, the, the criminal code provisions that have existed for some time around promoting hatred or, or incitement. Uh, so there will be a new standalone hate offense that this is going to create. But, is, I mean, is the bar set high enough for enforcing that, do you think? I find that one a really difficult one. And um, I sat through the technical briefing with the federal government last night, and I still can't get my head around exactly why they are proposing this independent new hate crimes provision. Um, mm -hmm. One of the issues with it is that they're importing a standard of hate that's from human rights legislation, and um, which is a lower standard typically than, than what we've seen in the criminal code previously. Right. It, it is still incredibly high. I mean, it's, it's the idea of disdain and detestation to the level that it's utterly dehumanizing to a group of individuals. Uh, so, so we're not talking about 
hate as much as as a legal threshold. Um, but the decision to add this specific provision in the criminal code, I'm not sure specifically why they felt a need to do that. And they also have made some changes that risk life imprisonment. Right. Um, and and I understand that the, the decision to do this was just to give more discretion to the judiciary. And I, I generally favor more discretion to the judiciary. They're in the room with the individuals. Um, but I think that the pushback on that one, the risk, I can't even think of a scenario where that would be an appropriate sentence um, for, uh, for some sort of, you know, crime, uh, free speech crime. So now the government, you know, they, they've laid this out, but I mean, this Digital Safety Commission and the ombudsperson in, in particular. So there's there's a lot now of responsibility that falls on those individuals. Um, you know, if the government's choosing that. I mean, there, there's inherently going to be some politics wrapped up in all of this. But uh, how important is it going to be to have the right people in these positions? Oh, it's incredibly important. And I was thinking that they need to uh, specify that it's digital rights experts that need to be part of that commission. That was a point of debate with Bill C-27, the private sector um, privacy law, because they're looking to create a tribunal too. And they actually mandate in the legislation certain expertise. That's what at least what they're proposing. So I think they should do the same here. Um, I have to take a look again because my understanding is that Parliament would actually vote on the chair of this commission. Mm -hmm. And it's unique. I haven't seen anything like this globally, that the commission itself would be three to five individuals. So that means that you don't have one individual that wholly drives the development of regulations and codes of practice and education mandates. That's an interesting teamwork environment. Um, the ombudsperson is separate, and I think it's it, the decision to do that was that they needed some sort of victor, victim-centered body, some individual that could really work with impacted groups to understand what is happening better, to be a resource to help them navigate it. This was something that I know part of my conversations was demanded um, as as critical from uh, victim and victim groups, and so. So I think that's important as well, as well as um, this office that will support both bodies. But I think that everyone would be, you know, everyone's always concerned about the idea of capture by a commission or by a regulator. But it's capture by industry is just as much of a risk as capture by government. I hope having multiple people in Parliament needing to approve the chair maybe balances out some of those fears. Yeah. We'll see how it all plays out. Bill C-63 is uh, what it's now known, and I'm sure we'll be hearing a lot more about this in the weeks and months ahead. Uh, Professor Laidlaw, really appreciate your insight on all this. Thank you so much for joining us here. Thanks so much. All Bye. the best. That's uh, Emily Laidlaw, Professor of Law at the uh, University of Calgary, Canada Research Chair in Cybersecurity Law. So good overview of what uh, C-63 attempts to be, what it's attempting to do, and uh, you know maybe some of the flaws with it as well. Okay, so here's what we know sitting here on a Tuesday afternoon. The Liberals and the NDP have reached an agreement on pharmacare. Legislation needs to be tabled by March 1st. That's this Friday. So something's imminent. The Alberta government has said uh, that they're at least considering or leaning in the direction of opting out of whatever this is. 
Today, Federal Health Minister Mark Holland uh, said maybe everybody just needs to slow down a little bit here. First, I want to step back. I, I understand the excitement. I, uh, I'm very excited myself. Uh, after a very, very long period of negotiations, it seems we're nearing um, the conclusion where we're going to be able to table legislation and talk about what action we're going to take in pharmacare. Uh, some people are, are jumping the gun and sort of talking about what that is before it's completed, uh, and that's creating some confusion. So the first thing I would say is everybody just needs to take a pause. Um, you know, for provinces to say whether or not they're going to participate in something or not when they don't even know what it is, is a little premature. Uh, we're going to meet the deadline. Uh, we're going to be tabling legislation this week. Uh, and that means that there's an opportunity to talk about what exactly this is. Uh, I, you know, it's unfortunate. I would have liked to have an opportunity to talk to my provincial and territorial counterparts. I'm going to be over the next coming days, uh, you know, in advance of the, um, uh, in advance of tabling legislation so they can understand what our intention is. Uh, and those, those conversations at an official level are starting, but I want to have direct conversations with my, uh, my counterparts. So there's some premature reaction at this point in time. Premature reaction. That's what, uh, you know, the minister calls it. And sure, I guess we'll, we'll wait to see what the details are. Uh, but it's pretty clear what the, the thrust, the main thrust of pharmacare is, right? It's government taking over uh, this aspect of health care that is really not run by the government. Now, there are government plans that exist. They exist here in Alberta. For those who fall through the cracks, there's drug coverage available to seniors, uh, to those with low income. But for a lot of Canadians, they, they have drug coverage uh, through their employer. So do we need to upend all of that? Would we be better off by getting rid of all of that and just having single-payer universal drug coverage? I mean, that's the goal here. This is meant as kind of a first step in that direction. And like I said, we'll see what the details are. But... Maybe we should think twice about going down this path. At least that's a recommendation uh, stemming from a, a new study from the Montreal Economic Institute. Finds a single-payer single pharmacare program could jeopardize coverage quality for over 20 million Canadians. Now, joining us uh, to talk more about this report and this whole debate, very pleased to welcome in the program here this afternoon, uh, the author of this study, Emmanuel Faubert, is an economist at the Montreal Economic Institute, much more at IEDM.org. Emmanuel, great to have you with us here today. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Uh, like I say, we don't know the specific details as, as to what's coming from, from the federal government in terms of legislation here, but what can we say with some certainty about the direction of, of this whole pharmacare plan? Well, it is very vague right now, but if we're looking into a um, monopoly, so everyone having to shift to one singular insurance program mm -hmm. that is the, that is where there's a really big risk of um, decreasing the quality of care for a great number of Canadians and Albertans fall in that number right so this would replace I mean the idea is that this would replace everything else that exists all the private plans that exist the various uh, supplemental plans that exist like that would all be gone and we'd all be on the same system Exactly. That seems to be the plan for now. Mm -hmm. um, they're starting right now with contraception and di uh, diabetes medication, but that seems to be their plan eventually to replace every provincial program. So what are the risks then of, of doing that? What does your study find here? So um, in the situation we have right now, we have each province has their own system and in, inside these these provinces, there is some sort of com competition between private and public insurers. Mm -hmm. And what happens is if for these programs to be um, interesting to 
uh, employees and people, these private programs need to be uh, to to have a better coverage than the public governmental program, which is why in all provinces there is a very big difference between the number of medication covered by the provincial plan versus the private plan. If you look at Alberta, for example, the number of medications covered by private insurance has been, was basically double the provincial program. So you have that in every province. And if you, even if you take, um, depending on which list we have, for example, if we take, if that new program takes the RAMQ, which is Quebec's medication list, list which is the most generous of all Canada, mm-hmm. even then you have 21 million people that have potentially better insurance with their private providers. What do you make of the argument? We, we've heard this argument that if we were all on the same plan, if it's just one big universal single-payer system, that somehow there's some leverage, some negotiation leverage that we have that, that could result in lower drug prices. Well, that is twofold. First of all, there's already something there. There's an organization that takes care of such negotiations because it englobes the provincial all provincial programs so we all have already have that mm-hmm. so the benefits might be inflated and second of all the thing is if we really negotiate lower and lower prices what's going to happen is companies will say well you know what never mind we'll go sell our products where we can actually make our money losing a lot of potential and new medication for people that can't wait could it even result in a situation where some drugs just aren't available anymore, potentially? Exactly. Yeah. Because let's think about it for a second. A lot of the cost savings might come, actually, from the fact that fewer drugs will be covered. So if fewer drugs are covered, which means it means that now people have two choices, switching drugs or paying out of pocket. But what can happen often is that if a drug is not covered by any plan in a certain geographic area, the pharmaceutical company will just say, well, we won't sell it here anymore. It's not worth it. So these companies will completely leave and these medication might not be available anymore. So we do have a situation where some people do fall through the cracks. Like There are those Canadians who have drug plans, who are employers. There are Canadians who qualify for various government programs. If we are concerned about those who fall in between all of that, are are there better or more effective ways of addressing that other than, you know, adopting a massive new universal program? Yes, definitely. There are some people that fall through the cracks, especially in Ontario. And if I remember well, Terre-Neuve et Labrador, for example, there are in those two provinces, people that are ineligible for any type of insurance. So if we really want to have uh, everybody covered, or at least be eligible for coverage, then first of all, we should leave this for each individual provinces to decide this, maybe with an incentive, but this should be, this should remain a provincial decision. But something like Quebec's system, where we have um, a program that is by default everybody is regi- registered for the RAMQ but they have we have the choice for uh, private insurance that is usually more generous but 100% of the population is covered so nobody right. falls through cracks 
We'll see where this all goes from here. Much more is mentioned. IEDM.org. Emmanuel, thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All the best. That's uh, Emmanuel Faubert, economist at the Montreal Economic Institute, author of this new study. And how a single-payer pharmacare program could jeopardize uh, coverage quality for as many as 21 million Canadians. So IEDM.org, you can read their assessment. We'll see what uh, the government tables this week. So the health minister says everyone just pumped the brakes here. Look, I mean, you are the ones, the government's the ones that are negotiating this behind closed doors. This is all very political because, of course, it stems from this deal they have, this arrangement they have with the NDP. So just be transparent about what's going on here. On the other side, the Alberta government has been criticized for saying that we're going to opt out before we've actually seen what's in this. But the Alberta government is also saying, look, the federal government wants to improve access or improve coverage. If they want to contribute to that, we'll, we'll, we'll do that. We'll just we'll do it our way. So the health minister, Adriana Lagrange, speaking this morning, was asked then, okay, if we opt out, are we still prepared to offer something that's comparable? What I would say is that we already provide over 5,000 drugs through our robust pharmacare program here in Alberta, which include diabetes medication, which includes uh, birth control medication. So um, we would be absolutely willing to enhance those programs. All we need is the federal government to provide those dollars to us, and we will make sure that we enhance the programs. Because we do have, as I um, specified yesterday in my my interviews, that uh, we have a very robust Pharmacare program here in Alberta. So, just clarifying, you are committing to making those two drugs free to anyone who's not covered? Well, it's not just two drugs, it's a series of different types of drugs and different types of processes. Whether, you know, with birth control, it's, it's uh, pills, but there's also in uterine devices, etc. So, it's, it's the gamut of what's available. So, what we currently have available um, and fund, we would look to enhance those, absolutely. But we need the dollars to do that. We want to avoid the bureaucracy. I don't think the federal government understands the, that provinces do have processes in place. They have suppliers. They have an administrative um, network already set up. And they're looking to provide new, um, you know, something different, which adds bureaucracy and administrative burden on top of what we already have. So give us the dollars, we'll spend it in those areas. And I, I have to wonder, is this actual universal uh, health care when, in fact, um, they're just providing in two specific areas, diabetes and birth control? My understanding of pharmacare and universal health care encompasses all medications. Well, I think that's the plan eventually, but it sounds like they're starting with these two. So that's what we know. Part of why we know that is, is A, you've got government sources that are leaking that. The NDP are out there talking about it. So for Mark Holland to say, oh, everybody's, you know, slow down. They just tabled the bill already. So that, that's, that's imminent. I mean, Friday's the deadline for that to happen because of that political arrangement with the NDP. So there's Adriana LaGrange, Alberta's health minister, saying, you know, we'll, we'll do it our way. If the federal government wants that to be addressed, then then send us some money, write us a check, and, and we'll address it. Now, we'll get back to some of your phone calls uh, later in this hour. I've got a few other things to get to as well. Off the top in this hour, though, the ongoing conversation around vaping, or more broadly now, nicotine policy. Smoking rates have declined significantly in Canada over the last 20 years. And I think a strong argument would be made that uh, less harmful alternatives 
have played a role in that. But at the same time, too, these other products uh, are being used by people who weren't smokers to begin with. They are being used by minors, even though nicotine products are supposed to be for those over the age of 18. Uh, so we've had an issue with e-cigarettes. That's been the primary, I guess, uh, nicotine alternative. But we're seeing others uh, becoming a factor now as well, so-called nicotine pouches. The federal government says they're, they're going to be announcing some new policy soon to crack down on nicotine pouches. Because uh, initially these were approved by Health Canada as a smoking cessation tool. But as a natural health product, and as such, uh, there's some different regulations around that. So these were being sold in convenience stores. It wasn't even necessarily mandatory that they be sold to uh, those over 18. So the federal health minister says they're going to close that regulatory loophole. But there's a call yesterday, though, for provincial and federal governments to go much further in cracking down on e-cigarettes, uh, vaping, and um, other nicotine alternatives. Uh, it's a group called Save Stop Addicting Adolescents to Vaping and E-Cigarettes. Joining us on the line here this afternoon is Renit Kalon, one of the uh, spokespeople for Save. It was part of the uh, press conference yesterday. Renit, good to have you with us. You're welcome to the program. And she disappeared. <laughs> okay, well, let's uh, we'll try that one more time here. Now, the Alberta government uh, does have a, um, a vaping strategy, a tobacco and vaping reduction strategy. The good news is that in recent years, it's, it appears maybe things are going in the right direction. Although the Alberta government has strangely suggested the opposite. Uh, the most recent numbers, for example, from the Canadian Student Tobacco, Alcohol and Drug Survey uh, shows that in 2019... 19.9% of kids in grades 7 through 12 had used an e-cigarette in the last 30 days. The most recent numbers for 2022 show that's down to 14.8. So that's encouraging. I mentioned smoking numbers as well. Smoking numbers are down significantly. According to that data, just 2.2% of Alberta teens are smokers. And that number's down significantly from where it was, you know, at the turn of the century. Even in more recent years, for example, the number of smokers uh, between age 15 and 19 was 9.8% in 2015. That was down to 5.2% in 2022. Uh, but still, I mean, these are products intended for adults. Does more need to be done to ensure it stays that way? All right. I think we got uh, Renit back on the line with us here. Renit, are you there? Yes, I am. Okay. Well, I appreciate you joining us here. So what, what was the message at the press conference yesterday? Yeah, well, we are really advocating and calling on the Alberta government to do three things to prevent youth addiction to nicotine. The first is to ban all flavors but tobacco. Children and youth are very unlikely to vape or use nicotine pouches if the products have only tobacco flavor. And a number of Canadian provinces have already done this. So Alberta is behind in this regard. Second, we call on the government to ban single-use devices. Their low prices, what children and youth can afford, and they also harm the environment with their plastics and batteries. And thirdly, we call on the government to ban all nicotine pouches until they can be sold only in pharmacies and in plain packaging. What's the concern here then? Well, nicotine addiction is becoming um, a, an increasing problem and has been a problem for several years now in youth. And in high schools, in bathrooms, change rooms, sporting events, hallways, youth are starting to vape. And now they're even starting to use these nicotine pouches. And there's 
several adverse health effects of using nicotine and being addicted to nicotine. And so we really need to address this through legislative change. And that's what we're calling on for. When you say increasing, what, what do you mean increasing? Well, I mean, I can speak from personal experience first and foremost. When I was in high school two years ago, I saw people vaping all around. And it's it's really disappointing because teachers are having to leave their classrooms to supervise kids in the bathrooms. Some schools are having to take off bathroom door stalls uh, because people are just vaping so much. And so that's why it's, it's really a concern. Okay. Well, and, and look, as, as I pointed out earlier, I mean, you know, smoking rates are down dramatically, especially if we go back over, you know, 20 or 25 years. I think that's an encouraging trend. Even in, in more recent years, um, vaping numbers uh, appear to be plateauing or, or dropping somewhat. So what, what do we make of that? Well, our message is that no youth should be addicted to nicotine. And the, the problem is that these vapes and nicotine uh, products are serving as a gateway into um, addiction and into smoking. So, in fact, youth who vape are 3.7 times more likely to smoke than youth who don't vape. And if some of these devices, especially nicotine pouches, like I said, are licensed as cessation devices for smoking, then they should be sold only in plain packaging and sold only by pharmacies. So they have that extra level of regulation. So non-tobacco, non-tobacco nicotine is and, and can be a smoking cessation tool. Sorry, could you repeat that for me? Non-tobacco nicotine, whether it's patches, gum, or perhaps pouches or, or vaping, that this, this is and can be a smoking cessation tool. Mm-hmm. Yes, right. it can. Well, do you but... think it is? I mean, why, why do we think then that, you know, that as vaping has become more prevalent in society, that smoking rates have plunged so dramatically? So the idea of using these nicotine products as cessation devices is, once again, for smokers. And there are, like I said, positive um, impacts, of course, of having these cessation devices. But if they are, if their primary goal is cessation, then they should be, should be sold behind pharmacy pills and have that extra regulation of having a prescription. They shouldn't be so accessible to youth who are just using them not as a cessation device, but they're misusing them and they're, and they're serving as a gateway into that nicotine addiction. And we see, especially with these imperial tobacco nicotine pouches known as Zonic, they're in a colorful candy-like format. They're in very attractive flavors like Tropical Breeze, which is quite literally a lifestyle advertisement. And this really show, serves to show that they are advertised and marketed to youth and children. Um, these pouches are addictive. So as cessation devices, they should be used only in uh, plain packaging and behind pharmacy tills. On the point, though, of smoking cessation, I mean, it seems like the, the, the bigger goal here is to, to end smoking, to end tobacco use. That's where we see the real harms. Uh, do we not give thought, should we not give thought to the unintended consequences here that if we make these alternatives less available, less attractive, or we try to convince people that they're just as bad as smoking, that we're going to still have smokers. We're, we're not achieving that goal of ending smoking. Aren't we getting in the way of, of that, which is the real, I think, public health benefit here? Well, I think it's naive to think that smoking is the only health public health concern here. Uh, vaping has continually shown, and we're, we're getting this mounting pile of evidence um, as we go forward, that there are several negative health impacts of vaping, and especially on children, because youth brain is so plastic and it's still developing and so these nicotine addiction on the youth brain has several very adverse health effects um, and we're seeing more evidence of that 
So we need tighter regulation on nicotine products to protect youth. Any amount of youth vaping is too many. And that's what we're trying to address and call on the government to do here. Well, still, but I mean, I think we can quantify health risks. I mean, kids shouldn't have caffeine. Kids should minimize the amount of sugar they have. Like we, we can compile a list of things that are readily available that pose varying degrees of health risks to people. But in terms of quantifying those risks, I mean, you know, we can easily put a number to how many people die every year as a result of smoking or lung cancer cases tied to smoking every year. How many people died last year from tobacco pouches? I mean, zero as far as I can tell. Or nicotine pouches, rather. Well, how many years have they been using those nicotine pouches? Smoking, we've had many years to see the longitudinal studies come out that have shown the adverse health effects of smoking over long periods of time, over long periods of use. Um, and we don't have that much time and data behind vaping yet. But what we do see is very alarming already. And especially with these nicotine pouches, which, which sit just under the tongue, we see that there are a number of oral health concerns that are arising with this as well. So, so it is a quantifiable concern, and it really is presenting a public health issue for perhaps one of our more vulnerable populations, which is children and youth. And so we should be taking those necessary steps to, to mitigate this. Well, the, the requirement that they be sold to, to adults, I mean, maybe we need to enforce that more, but, but why is that not sufficient? I mean, you know, we have flavored alcohol, there's flavored wine coolers that exist, and clearly those are not intended for kids. Maybe at some level they, they have some appeal. I mean, there's, is there a double standard there? Well, the, the enforcement issue is, is a big one for sure, and that's something we're very concerned with as well. We actually, the FAVE group uh, recently has done a secret shopper study where we went into convenience stores and we saw um, if, if convenience store owners are, would be willing to sell to youth or if they had an o older sibling with them, would they sell to the older sibling, even though it was quite apparent that it was going to be used by the, the minor. And we saw that, in fact, uh, this, this enforcement of the age bans is is not is not adequate at all, and so um, that is definitely a concern as well. Um, but the underlying, I think, issue, the, the upstream issue, is really that these products are so easily accessible. So, for instance, a single-use vape is only about six dollars. A Zonic pouch is under twelve dollars, um, and so they're they're very accessible to children, and that's uh, something that can be easily addressed with legislative changes. Well, the feds say they do have some new rules coming on these uh, nicotine pouches. We'll see what those look like. Uh, more on all of this at save.ca. That's S-A-A-V-E dot C-A. Renit, thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Do appreciate this. Thanks so much for having me. All the best. Uh, Renit Kalan is a spokesperson with the group SAVE, Stop Addicting Adolescents to Vaping and E-Cigarettes. They want much stronger action from both the feds and the province. Uh, to crack down on vaping, on nicotine pouches, get rid of the flavors, get rid of the single-use devices, uh, require that these pouches, uh, you know, you need a prescription, that they only be behind the, sh the shelf at a pharmacy. I don't know. Is that going too far? Nicotine should be for adults. I think we're more or less in agreement on that. But look, I mean, if smokers have the option to switch to a pouch or switch to a vape, I mean, if every smoker did that tomorrow, there would be an enormous measurable health benefit. I mean, this is harm reduction uh, in its purest form. Nicotine has health risks for sure. Nicotine is addictive for sure. Uh, these other products are, are demonstrably less dangerous than smoking. And I don't think we should lose sight of that. Unfortunately, it feels like maybe we have to some extent.
Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.